HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. HRN is offering complimentary business memberships to 50 Black, Indigenous, people of color-owned food businesses this summer. The deadline to apply is July 31st. Each business membership, a $500 value, is an advertising opportunity that will allow businesses disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 to connect with HRN's listening community and promote their work. To apply and review the terms and conditions, go to heritageradionetwork.org B-I-Z. This episode is brought to you by Square. If you run a restaurant or business, Square has the tools to help you stay connected to customers, shift your business, and navigate this uniquely challenging time. Learn more at square.com go meet. That's square.com go M-E-A-T. This episode of Meet and 3 is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com. You got to understand your worth to make it in this world today. So it's like my worth, I understand. I could be something better than somebody on the streets or, or, or doing what I was doing in the past. And I could become somebody like I'm doing right now, taking this culture that I have and this, this farming life that I'm doing and showing that. The inner cities, like, listen, you don't always got to be a football doctor, police, none of that. You could also resort back to the land and, and become a, a natural grown farmer that, that you are because your ancestors were doing this for hundreds of years. For many people, the word farming connotes food production, a means to an end. Sow the seeds so we can later eat the harvest. While food yield is no doubt an important part of agriculture, this week we're looking towards the byproduct of the process itself. That is, the various healing elements the experience of farming and gardening can bring. I'm Kat Johnson, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal. For your ears. Meat and Three. First up this week, we follow Tosh Kimmel as she looks at prison programs using gardening as a form of rehabilitation and its transformative effect on the lives of incarcerated people. Perhaps it was the apocalyptic nature of 2020's swift descent into chaos. The whispers of a food shortage are the general malaise of spending days inside, which caused many of us to renew our connection with nature. 
For me, this has meant spending my newfound free time turning even the tiniest parcels of land into garden space. As the boredom and alienation of quarantine set in, my garden became my sanctuary. And while many have joked about quarantine being like prison, the reality is that few of us can imagine life in true confinement. Though gardening has become a trendy pastime in the age of corona, for those incarcerated, growing and harvesting food has long been a source of solace and purpose in the tense and tedious world of prison. This isn't about how people are broken. This isn't about trying to make them somebody different. This is saying you have a wholeness inside you. And just like every seed has a wholeness inside of it, and by nurturing that wholeness, then you can grow, we can all grow, and we need each other for that growth. That's Amy Boyer, Program Manager at Insight Garden Program, or IGP, a gardening and vocational program which functions in 11 prisons in California, Indiana, and Ohio. The program's curriculum, which is divided into four parts over the course of one year, focuses not only on teaching the technical skills of plant cultivation, but also on cultivating communication, leadership, and mindfulness skills through gardening. We connect people to self, nature, and community. And Insight Garden Program, we try to build that community where people can be honest with themselves and with each other and support each other. There are multiple studies showing prison gardening's positive effects on recidivism and mental health but it's the interpersonal skills and self-awareness which have been the most life-changing for people like Rashid Lockhart. He's a former San Quentin inmate and IGP participant. I, since the age of 15, have been incarcerated for every year, Um, and I'm 42 now. I've been out less than a year since I was 15, and on this last most recent incarceration, I was down a total of 18 years. I am, I've touched every part of the system that you could think about. This whole thing of gardening inside of prisons, I mean, puts on me a sense of responsibility, empathy, and discipline that I don't know I could have gotten somewhere else. Digging into the ground together and having a conversation that I don't think anywhere else would have gave us the opportunity to have. When they come in, they create a space and an opportunity for guys to do something different than the usual time. And this whole thing of, you know, planting something and watching it grow and nurturing it while at the same time taking a look within yourself is is something that people just don't do on the inside. Rashid is now a staff member at Planting Justice, a grassroots urban gardening program out of Oakland, California. He attributes his successful reentry to the skills he learned during his time in IGP. Its impact and the difference that it's made on my life, I can't even begin to to put into words. I mean, the, you know, like right now with Planting Justice, I am a reentry coordinator. I'm on the leadership council and I am a grassroots fundraiser. None of that happens without me having been introduced to the Inside Garden program. Every moment is just one moment, right? And it's how we come out of those moments that make the difference. And so that's how I navigate the world. While Rashid could be considered the poster child for prison gardening's transformative effects, it's important to recognize that there are other important markers of success. While programs like IGP give their students the skills and opportunities to excel in the outside world, just the seemingly simple act of finding joy on a prison yard is a victory in itself. So success can have many different aspects to it. And it doesn't always lead to recidivism going down. And I think this is also no longer my expectation because many people that 
that we need in our program have been incarcerated many, many times, not just in double digits, sometimes in triple digits. And I don't think it's realistic to say a certain time in the garden can reverse all of that. But I think it can be a starting point and it can encourage people to say, I want to try something new. Maybe I'm seeking out more support outside. Maybe I'm seeking out therapy or take care for myself in a different way than I did before. I realize we might not see it right away, but I think any minute, any hour spent together in that garden can have a huge effect in the future. We just have to be patient. That's Hilda Cruz, director of the Greenhouse Program and Horticultural Therapy Services with the Horticultural Society of New York. The Greenhouse Program is the first to use horticultural therapy in a correctional setting and functions out of New York's Rikers Island Jail. Similar to IGP, the Rikers Greenhouse Program works to renew a sense of purpose and self-worth while teaching vocational skills through gardening. When we talk about jails or prisons, one thing that I find important to know is there's no population that, that could be called inmate or jail population. These are people from so many walks of life. And we have men and women. We have mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters. We have older people. We have very young people people with family, people who might have been homeless, people with mental illness or very different levels of education. So this is an important aspect for me also, that we need very, very different people there. And everybody comes together in that space, and yet everyone is able to benefit from from this space. And I think this is, to me, always... Truly amazing to see. While the people in these programs are often seen as intrinsically flawed and in need of rehabilitation, the reality is that as the country with the single largest prison population, the U.S. prison system is the one in need of change. But even in the midst of this toxic and unjust penal system, these men and women, against all odds, continue to grow alongside the seeds they've planted. Perhaps Rashid says it best. Although... You know, things are kind of crazy and, and a mess in the world right now. There's still seeds growing. That's not going to stop. Regardless of what's happening, we're still putting seeds in the ground. They're still growing. And at some point, that fruit is going to it's going to bear a different way of life. And as long as they continue to plant those seeds behind the walls, it's going to give a different way of life to a whole lot of, of guys and women. Although gardening within the walls of these inherently flawed institutions cannot mend the systemic oppression faced by its inmates, they can offer a glimpse into a better future, one which leans towards beauty, kindness, and ultimately freedom. For our next story, Hannah Forden takes us to Ironbound Farm, where its owners are providing employment, development opportunities, and solace for people who are formerly incarcerated. Do we need help? Yes, we need big help. We need to be known what farmers really mean to American economy. Like when you look at when you look at well, you know, I'm a black person, so I do a lot of um, researches of uh, uh, old 
old farmers from back in the day to now. Like a lot of farmers been stripped. Like my culture, my race been stripped from a lot of land. This is what we did. We farmed. This is what we did. When we came from Africa, we was put on a plantation to work. Like this is what we did. You know, some did it with, with their heart and their chest because they liked to do it and some was forced to do it. You know, I, I do it because I want to do it. So this is my culture. This is my thing. I love farming. Meet James Williams. He's the crew chief and curriculum co-coordinator at Ironbound Farm. I was released from prison five years ago, six years ago. Ironbound is based in New Jersey, headquartered in Newark with its farm located a world away in the rural western part of the state. When he left prison, James's brother was working at the farm, and he decided to check it out. I went there to the program, and I sat there, and I gave Charles a listen, and his vision sounded like everything I could um, step into. Like, I, I really appreciated that. He was trying to get a, um, guys a chance, a second chance of, of earning a pay and, and working, you know what I mean? Jobs that pay a living wage and are open to formerly incarcerated individuals are few and far between. Ironbound was founded by Charles Rosen in 2011 with the mission to provide workforce development opportunities to Newark residents through regenerative farming. The majority of our employees, almost all of our employees, were formerly incarcerated men and women, also including veterans, immigrants, people with special needs. The company produces cider and grows vegetables that they sell at their headquarters in Newark. I said, you know, let me give it a shot. Like, it can't hurt myself. And besides, growing up, my grandfather... He was like the first farmer that I, I actually worked with because he, in the back of the building, he had a little small garden. In the city, you know, a lot of a lot of old folks used to have a lot of little backyard gardens. But farming, growing food, never seemed like a viable career path when James was growing up. Instead, there was really only one much higher paying option. It's a quick fix. Like, you know, when you rip in the streets, it's like, if you could make $1,000 in like two hours, then going to work when you got to take a whole two weeks or a week or whatever it may take to make that money, that's the separation that the world don't understand about the communities that I come from. Like, we don't want to be in and out of prison, but we don't want to be poor either. Until discovering Ironbound, James wasn't given much of a chance to enter the traditional job market. Rehabilitation and job training were sorely missing from his prison experience. The prison system has changed, like, a whole, I mean, super duper. When they privatized prison, they started taking everything out the prison. So it's like putting a human being in a cage for 23 hours, and, and that's it, that's all. Prison used to be a college course. Like, you go away, you come back with degrees. And, you know, yeah, you, you lose out on years in the streets, but at the end of the time, you better yourself, you, you, you become a little smarter, and you walked out with a GED or high school diploma or, or college degree. So they took all that out because society don't want to see that part of people going in prison coming out smarter than them. So Charles Rosen, Ironbound's founder, came to Newark from the affluent suburb of Montclair with a mission in mind. Charles wanted to put his social justice convictions into practice. He brought with him a wildly varied career background. He's a lawyer who produced movies and started an advertising firm 
He even ran for Congress. I went to Newark uh, with a level of arrogance, a level of entitlement that just astounds me right now. But, you know, I was like, well, I'm going to you know, take all my money and come out of a town like Montclair, New Jersey, and I'm going to go to Newark and help black folk. Like the audacity of that kind of liberal elite notion of like helping the downtrodden, um, it took me a long time to understand that that's not how the work is really done. But by engaging with the local community, this notion was quickly disrupted as he learned how deep systemic racial inequality is and how racist structures pervade our food system and the economy as a whole. I think we have a president that personifies this where, you know, our winner-take-all form of success where if I work hard and you get out of my way, you know, I'm getting a boat and it's your fault that I don't have one kind of mentality, you know, that idea of of American exceptionalism doesn't work, nor does the idea of the social justice warrior going in to help those less fortunate. It's a lovely gesture and it's a lovely notion of charity, but perpetuates a system of the haves and have-nots. By giving people like James Williams the opportunity to reestablish their relationship with food and the land, Ironbound is working to break the cycle of recidivism. According to a 2019 study by the U.S. Sentencing Commission, rates of reincarceration for nonviolent offenders are 40% nationally. If people understand everybody is living poorly, I don't give a fuck. Everybody all want the same thing. Everybody want to wake up, picket fence, little dog, house, family, and that's it. Good little decent job, decent pay. That's it. James has a business plan outlined and is saving up to be able to one day own his own farm. That, in and of itself, is a revolutionary move. By changing the relationship that individual Americans have with food and farms, James sees the opportunity to change the world for the better and empower communities most deeply impacted by systemic racism. This one, they got to get cocky with it. You got to know your worth. You got to let your people know, look, listen, we going to always be here when, when something dramatic happens because at the end of the day, we know how to provide food. You understand what I'm saying? A lot of human beings can't get out there and, and grow their own food and survive. To learn more about Ironbound, go to ironboundhardcider.com. We'll be right back with more Meat and Three. This episode is brought to you by Square. You might know Square from their little white card readers, but Square has a lot more tools that can help businesses, especially now that they're having to figure out how to safely reopen and make things work in this new normal. So many are stepping up to the challenge, like Fifth Hammer Brewing in Long Island City. To adapt, Fifth Hammer's co-owner Mary Izette created a Square online store so customers could browse available beers, build an order, and safely pick up cans from the taproom. I was able to set up our online store within 24 hours of moving to a to-go model. The Square online store allowed Fifth Hammer to keep beer production going, serve their local customers, and retain employees. It's also very easy to train your staff on. They will be able to receive, fulfill, and provide your customers with a contactless pickup in no time. If you're a business owner, Square wants you to know it has tools that can help you shift your business, like Fifth Hammer is doing. 
No matter if you're brewing beer, baking bread, or mixing to-go cocktails, you can start taking online orders in minutes with pickup and delivery. And if you're selling in person, Square can help you accept contactless payments. All these tools work together and they're all in one place. You just need a Square account to get started. See all the ways Square can help your business right now by visiting square.com slash go slash meet. That's square.com slash go slash M-E-A-T. This episode of Meet and 3 is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee, representing 75% of U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry production. With over 100 articles published in health journals stating the vast health benefits of Michigan's superfruit, it's best to choose the cherry with more. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry at choosecherries.com. Welcome back to Meet and 3. Next up, Emily Kunkel travels to northeastern Thailand where a group of farming grandmothers are engaging in environmental activism. For the past 15 years, Radical Grandmother Collective has been funding the fight for the health of their community and land, one scarf at a time. So I wrote this paragraph. Okay. That's Praveena. She's a Fulbright Fellow researching environmental justice issues in northeastern Thailand. She first learned about Radical Grandma Collective as a study abroad student. My host family and I hiked through rows of rubber trees to arrive at an abandoned mine site filled with contaminated water. I stare at this vessel of devastation and picture the cyanide seeping through the groundwater at the same protracted speed with which chronic disease plagues the people. Destroyed by promises of industrialization and progress, once lush farm fields perish in tandems with the livelihoods of local farmers. It's actually like a journal entry from when I was 20. <laughs> Pravina's talking about Nanongbong, a small village located in Isan a region known as the breadbasket of Thailand. Okay, so in 2006, Tungkum Limited Company began construction on this open pit mine. And the mine has led to really devastating, I'd say, environmental, health, social, and political impacts. One of the, you know, very basic reasons for this environmental and health devastation comes from the process of... Um, cyanide leaching. And so when you remove the ore from gold, um, this chemical leaches out into the soil and really, really devastated people's way of living, right? Like farmland, even contaminating water, sort of the unfortunate classic effects of extractive industries like gold mining. A professor of mine once described Isan as poor and oppressed. But what he didn't say is that Isan is political. And in a military dictatorship such as Thailand, where governmental critique could land you in prison, that is radical. Yeah, so Nanangmong villagers created a community group called People Who Love Their Hometown. And these activists organized protests to prevent the mining company from gaining new mine concessions and advocate to protect the community's health. The village funds this activism through Radgram's sale of woven scarves. While previously the town sold and consumed their farm-grown rice or vegetables, they've needed to adjust their crops to non-edibles such as cotton or rubber. This cotton is then harvested and woven into scarves over a period of two weeks. 
scarf sales were really sporadic without access to a consistent global market, right? So to bridge this gap, these five U.S. women, you know, were operating these the international sales of Radical Grandma Collective. And our nonprofit creates a model for women supporting women in an environmental justice work. In the past, um, we've seen, you know, the Village Fund go towards hiring human rights lawyers, uh, getting protest materials and transportation to go to Bangkok to advocate for their rights in this very centralized government. And, you know, some of the money does go back, of course, to these women who are using part of the funds for their livelihood. So the way, you know, the money works is that we pay the grandmas up front and they donate a portion of it to the larger fund, people who love their hometown, um, which the larger community then decides how that fund is spent based on, you know, sort of where the movement is and what they think the money should be spent on. While the mine was shut down five years ago, the land and water remain contaminated, and the community continues to face lawsuits and violent attacks from those still trying to harvest gold. To learn more about Radical Grandma Collective, visit RadicalGrandmaCollective.com. As we continue to navigate life with COVID-19, many farms are having to get creative to keep employees and customers safe. However, most farms don't have the unique challenges that come with operating under the purview of a school board. Today, we hear how one farm took advantage of that position to serve their community amid the pandemic. When schools started to shut down and the transition to online learning began, classes weren't the only thing being put on hold. Extracurriculars and programs that work through the school system were too like the Jones Valley Teaching Farm in Birmingham, Alabama. On a recent episode of The Farm Report, host Lisa Held speaks to Amanda Story, the executive director of the Jones Valley Teaching Farm, about the changes they have made during the pandemic. Panic. (laughs) Absolute panic. Because so much of what we have done and what our model looks like is around educational output and educational achievement. And students getting the opportunity to to do this work, which is exciting and fun and engaging and, you know, all of those things. And yeah, so we panicked because we thought, well, what is this? How, not about us necessarily, but about the students' ability to reach this program and because we know what great things it does. And normally we'd have all these students popping up student markets. They run their own student markets at each of these sites and they sell the food directly Mm. to their community. And we always have farm stands that are open that, that the students run. And we've always done that from an educational standpoint. We've always thought this is a great opportunity to include math and some curriculum to it. But we had to stop. We just said, there's, what are we going to do? And so the question really was, and this is, this is unique to those of us who do school gardens, is you're relying on a school system to tell you what to do sometimes. And that makes Mm. it not like we have our own, you know, (laughs) that we don't have to consider that. We do. And it's important to do that. That's why we are such good partners with the school systems. In a typical year, the Jones Valley Teaching Farm works with over 3,000 students to produce over 18,000 pounds of produce. When the pandemic hit, Amanda had to figure out how to maximize the farm's harvest without the help of her normal volunteers. 
get to call them and say, hey, we still have all this food that we've just planted and we need to keep it going because now we're just going to give it away. We're just going to make these into production farms. If we can't teach out of them, let's just turn them all into production farms and have them be a resource for our community instead of a teaching tool necessarily Mm. like we normally would do. With that, Amanda and her team began setting up new rules and preparing for a new type of farm. We had to shift every way that we operate as an organization. No more students to help us. No more volunteers. We rely heavily with seven farms, corporate volunteers to come in and help us in the spring and summer. Don't have those. We have 24 people at our organization. So we shifted. We uh, got the protocols in place, got the health officer to look at it. He approved it, went to the school system. They approved us to be on site, which is huge. A lot of school systems are not allowing that. It has been truly an interesting time to see no matter what role you had at Jones Valley Teaching Farm before this hit, you are now a farmer with no questions, right? Like you're farming. Um, And that's been great. Well, now we've just got food. And so we started to partner with our local agencies that are distributing to um, distributing to families specifically around our school sites because we thought, how do we get directly to the students that are used to getting this? Right. How it's impossible almost. So we decided the best way for us to do that is to partner with some local agencies that are actually doing food distribution in the communities where we are working, right? And so mm-hmm. every week we pack up at least 30 to 40, and in the summer it's gonna be more, what we're calling um, family farm shares, which is a really nice amount of food per family that they get in a bag that will go home with them and they'll have it to stretch. Amanda, like so many, has had to make lemonade out of lemons during this pandemic and has been able to not only keep her students involved, but also feed them. To hear the rest of Amanda's interview with Lisa, be sure to check out episode 398 on The Farm Report, From Teaching Students to Feeding Families. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Special thanks this week to Tosh Kimmel, Emily Kunkel, Miguel Webb, and Lisa Held. Meet and 3 is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Katie Mosman-Wadler, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Kat Johnson, with lead production this week by Emily Kunkel. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And stay in touch. With a story idea or just to say hello, you can write us at ideas at meetand3.nyc. That's all spelled out.